Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It's almost time for the start of the fall semester. Last year, many students and campus staff were acclimating to full-time or hybrid learning. But a return to in-person campus classes doesn't mean everything is back to normal. What would it be like back in class and following public health rules to stop the spread of COVID? How will students balance their course workloads while managing job and family expectations? Now, if you say it's all part of growing up, most of us did not go to college during a pandemic. Today, where we live, we find out how colleges and universities are thinking about mental health services. This is important because the CDC released a report in the spring finding 41% of Americans had symptoms of anxiety or depression between August of 2020 and this February. And people between the ages of 18 and 29 had some of the biggest increases in mental health problems. Coming up, we'll hear from students and from local universities, and we want to hear from you too. How do you feel about heading back to campus? What supports do you want to see at your school? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome the first guest to our show on Zoom, Jenny Sortini. She's a student at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, and she's a peer educator with the Student Wellness Education and Empowerment Team, also known as SWEET. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here today. Now, you're a junior at Sacred Heart. So first off, congratulations as you continue with your college education. Um, It's been quite a year and a half uh, for so many. And just broadly, I wanted to hear from you about um, how you saw the the COVID pandemic impacting the mental health of you and your fellow students. Yeah, so um, when COVID first started, everyone at Sacred Heart was a little... Um, confused as to what COVID really was and how that would impact our education. Um, One day, we just got a message from our school saying that we will no longer be at campus and everything, all of our classes will be on Zoom. And that really um, affected us um, because we had no idea how our classes were going to change and we didn't really understand the impact that had um during the year that semester the last semester um all of our classes were really harder and we had more work to do and we all were very stressed out um I personally, um, my mental, my mental health went like skyrocketed down because Mm -hmm. I was so overwhelmed with all the work I had, all of my teachers, um, for my classes and, um, overall just 
all the college students, we were so stressed out and depressed because we were under quarantine and could not see any of our friends and could not go anywhere. And we really didn't um, understand what was going on. And it was just a very dark time for Mm -hmm. everybody. And Jenny, how long was Sacred Heart fully remote? Um, I would say for like two semesters, I believe. Mm. Yeah. And so you said that, you know, you were so overwhelmed and despite this uh, last minute switch to, to full remote, uh, the workload didn't change. And so how did you manage to balance the year and to get through your sophomore year? Um, so it was, it was really hard for me. Um, personally, I was at home and I didn't really have a quiet place to study. Um, and that really impacted me because I had a full routine at school. I would go to classes and then block out two hours at least to do my homework and study in a quiet place. And when I went home, it was totally different. I didn't really have the motivation anymore to do work and I couldn't find a place to study and I couldn't leave my house and it was just really hard, but I, I managed, I tried to study outside or anything like that to help. And I barely got through the semester, but Mm. Um, it was just really hard. And what about your peers? Did you know some students who decided to take a year off or who were unable to complete the full year? Yes. Yeah, so um, one of my roommates that um, she's going to be my roommate for the spring semester, she actually um, decided to take a gap year um, and work instead of going to school. Also, um, my roommate fall semester of um, 2020, she decided to leave campus and go back to her house and um, do classes there instead of staying. We had, um, we could be in um, Sacred Heart Housing. However, our classes were mostly on Zoom and some um, classes were in person. However, it was very few students, maybe 10 people were allowed in a classroom. Um, I know a lot of people decided to take a gap year and a lot of people did end up quitting altogether um, because it was just too much for them. And it it was just overall very stressful for everybody. And Mm. I'm glad that many people decided to stay and go um, overcome everything. But I know some people it was just too much for them. You're hearing Jenny Sortini here on Where We Live. She's a junior at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield. As we talk about how colleges and universities are responding to the increased mental health needs of its students, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to welcome Dr. Nick Pinkerton to the show. He's Director of Counseling Services at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven. Nick, welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Can you respond to what Jenny shared? And would you say that um, her situation and others that she knew, similar to what you saw with Southern students? Yeah, I think Jenny touched on a number of issues that students were struggling with. Um, I think it, you know, we, we've been through something pretty profound, uh, something that no one was expecting or prepared for. The rapid transition to remote uh, was certainly very challenging for students. I think it was also very challenging for staff and for faculty. Uh, I know for us, you know, moving uh, our services entirely to remote telehealth um, was something that we did very, very quickly. Um, we had the additional hurdles of making sure that everything that we're doing is fully confidential, making sure that we're abiding by all of the best practices, um, by all of the guidance that is uh, given by the CDC and by uh, the health organizations, as well as by uh, specific um, mental health uh, and college counseling uh, best practices. So it was a rapid transition. It was something that we were also not expecting. And, you know, I think it, there's something to be said about having another person right across the room from you to look into their eyes and to work with them and to have that shared energy that we really uh, were missing. Now, with that said, we were grateful to have uh, the telehealth, but certainly I think screen fatigue is something that many students struggled with as they were transitioning to completely virtual classes. For some students, um, their environment was very conducive to learning. This is real, really where the, I think the experience was, was really diverse. So you had some students who really thrived in, in many ways in an environment, in a home that was supportive uh, of their learning, uh, where they felt supported maybe by family and by friends. Um, and they really made that transition quite smoothly. And then you had other students who had difficulty with access to technology, who maybe there were uh, family members that were sick or frontline workers uh, who were exposed. You had financial, housing, food insecurity. Um, and you had all of these factors sort of coming together at a time when students were very worried about their safety, about the safety of their loved ones, about the disruption in, in their lives. Um, the isolation, as Jenny touched on, from friends, from engaging in what they sort of expected would be their college experience. And for a place like Southern, you know, we have for so long prided ourselves and, we, and it's such an amazing community um, to have students on campus engaged with one another involved in programming. And these are things that we continued to find ways to make happen and to also at the same time, make sure that we are doing it in safe ways. But it's been a rapid transition and evolution. It's required everyone to sort of adjust to a new normal. I, I, I hesitate to even call it that because I feel like uh, we're still very much in the transition and working and Nick, this out together. And Nick, you mentioned telehealth. So tell me about that um, and how 
did students reach out to you and your counselors? Uh, was there more of an effort to reach out to them and for students who needed that in-person um, in person experience, uh, were you able to accommodate them? Absolutely, yeah. We really had a very robust telehealth offering. All of the services that we were providing uh, in person and on ground, uh, which continued to to be available in whatever capacity we could could uh, provide that safely, uh, we also provided via telehealth. And most of the students that we worked with, who really they were given a choice as to which uh, variety they they would choose most chose telehealth. Uh, and from our surveys, we found that most students were very satisfied uh, with the telehealth. In fact, for some of our students, the convenience um, of being able to meet with a, a clinician on their device um, from really anywhere that suited them was something that was very practical and very helpful. Um, and at the same time, there were other students as we mentioned, who very much struggled with finding a place that felt private, that felt like they could really discuss openly the concerns that they had without sort of having um, the, the thin walls or um, uh, other folks be able to sort of be in on those conversations. We got very creative about this. We, I know myself, I had sessions with some of my students as they were going on a walk or as they were sitting in their car. Um, we tried to do everything we could to accommodate the students and be understanding of the circumstances that we all found ourselves in. You're hearing Dr. Nick Pinkerton here on the show. He's Director of Counseling Services at Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven as we talk about the mental health needs of college students, especially as the fall semester is just about to begin. You can join us, 888-720-9677. Are you ready for a return to full in-person classes on campus. Again, you can join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jenny Sortini uh, at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, I mentioned that you're a peer educator at the Student Wellness Education and Empowerment Team. And so what is the fall semester going to look like? Is Sacred Heart uh, fully in person? And you know, how are you and your peer educators going to help uh, students as they transition back? Yeah, so at Sacred Heart University, in the fall semester, we will be 100% in person. Um, so our team, the Student Wellness Education Empowerment Team, we promote wellness on campus. Um, we have a number of programs for students, such as the Bar Exam, Sweet Dreams, and Project Connect. So those programs help students with um, important issues they're facing on campus. So. We um, partner with ResLife um, for some of these programs. So um, they're um, so the RAs at campus. They um, have their floor for a meeting, and we at least two sweet peer educators join and present these programs. Um, so the par the bar exam goes over um, issues regarding alcohol. And um, we provide like a safe space for students to openly discuss alcohol use, even if they are underage um, in these programs, we um, do not um, tell on them in a sense. So we don't, they cannot get in trouble for anything they say during these programs. 
So it does provide a safe space and a lot of students do um, participate in these programs because of that. So it's really important to um, have these students feel safe enough to open up about these issues because it very, it really is um, difficult um, to discuss some of these issues and it's really one of the big issues students face. Um, we also provide a program um, called Sweet Dreams, which goes over um, sleep and how that's very important for students because a lot of students um, stay up until three, four in the morning studying and don't really get any sleep and they're very tired in the morning for classes. So we provide them with um, different um, techniques for um, studying and how they can um, go and have like um, study sessions with students or d different um, methods to studying and how sleep is a very important factor in um, our lives. Um, we do provide little goodie bags for them with a sleep mask and, you know, earplugs because um, the dorms, it can get very loud sometimes. <laughs> so, um, you know, you need those earplugs so you can get a decent sleep at night. Right. But, um, so, so you know, yeah. so students helping each other um, and it seems to be something that students respond to, right, versus going to an official adult in some capacity. But uh, and I wanted to ask you, you know, you're a junior, you've got a busy schedule. What got you in, interested in wanting to be a peer educator and to help other students navigate their mental wellness? Yeah, so um, I personally struggle with anxiety and depression. I've struggled for at least eight to nine years. Um, so it's very hard. Um, and I found that a lot of my peers are also struggling. Um, um, in my class, there have been at least three suicides um, at Sacred Heart. And it really impacted our community. And I just really want to help students get through that because I know um, how difficult it is on your daily life, struggling with depression, anxiety, and um, also suicide. Um, my biological father committed suicide in 2017 and it, it was really hard on me. Um, I mean, he struggled with depression all, all my life, basically, um, as I've known him. Um, depression runs on that side of the family and um, it, it was really hard growing up, um, you know, uh, living with that. Um, and seeing him struggle. So it wasn't too much of a surprise that he did commit suicide. However, it was really, really hard for me because um, I didn't really get to say goodbye. So mm. I, well, I, I just I, knew. Jenny, I'm sorry to hear about your loss, but 
um, you know, the fact that you're, you've turned that you know, into ways to help uh, other students as a peer educator, that's really powerful, and uh, Sacred Heart is uh, lucky to have you helping uh, peers. Uh, I wanted to mention, you know, we have um, heard nationwide there have been clusters uh, of suicides uh, during this pandemic, and if you're in Connecticut and you're struggling, you can always call 211. And there's also this National Suicide Prevention Line at 800-273-TALK, which is 800-273-8255. Uh, Jenny, I wanted to hear uh, Nick's thoughts uh, as someone who directs uh, counseling services at Southern about uh, the how effective it is when you have students helping students. Nick, what do you think of that model? I am a huge fan of that model. And so I give you so much credit, Jenny, for the great work that you're doing. I really do believe that peer mentorship, peer support is just such an important thing to invest in. We are doing much of the same types of programming here at Southern. Uh, we have such a wonderful student body here, such a diverse group of students and having them feel empowered to support one another is just one of the most amazing things that uh, I, I get to bear witness to. So. I'm, I'm really pleased to hear about the great work that you're doing, and we are absolutely, uh, you know, invested in doing the same kind of peer support here at Southern. Mm. Uh, Jenny, before we head to break, as I mentioned, you know, so many students looking forward to going back to campus, uh, in-person classes, and it's great to hear that there's SWEET and other programs that are there to help uh, students. But uh, any other challenges uh, that you anticipate uh, that students will encounter uh, this fall in ways that you hope uh, the school responds? So... Um, just the transition back into in-person classes. Um, I know the CDC now wants students to wear a mask indoors again, even if you are fully vaccinated. Um, I know a lot of us were hoping we that when we got vaccinated, we wouldn't have to wear a mask anymore. Um, but now we do, so that that's a struggle that we're going to have. I know a lot of people you know, did not like the mask. And it's really hard in class to like hear your teacher and hear other students when they're talking. And it'll just be a change for everybody. Um, but a lot of us are glad that we're going to be in person and can actually see each other. Um, it's just going to be a little more difficult with um, events that are being planned for students because now there are more gu guidelines coming back into play. Um, so I'm really hoping that our school will have an easy transition for that and um, we'll have the right procedures and we'll hear our um, issues and we'll help with that. Well, thank you, Jenny Sortini, again, a junior at Sacred Heart University. She's a peer educator with the Student Wellness Education and Empowerment Team, also known as SWEET on campus. This is a group that promotes wellness, and it's a peer group, students helping students. Jenny, thank you for your time, and good luck this year. I also wanted thank to... You. 
Thank you. And I wanted to mention that Dr. Nick Pinkerton will stay with us. He's Director of Counseling Services at Southern Connecticut State University, New Haven. As we continue talking about how colleges and universities uh, need to support students and how they will do so as so many are returning to classes uh, on campus, in person, the Delta variant is uh, definitely not something many people anticipated. We're going to talk about all of that uh, right after the break. And you can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Many colleges and universities are preparing for in-person classes this fall, but of course the Delta variant is on the minds of many as they plan. Staying healthy is a concern for students too. Add that to the stress of paying for college, juggling work schedules and relationships. And this fall could be as stressful as last year in the pandemic. Today we're learning how local schools are thinking about meeting the mental health needs of college students and the programs that they offer. With me on Zoom is Dr. Nick Pinkerton, Director of Counseling Services at Southern Connecticut State University of New Haven. And joining us now is Judy Riley Roberts. She's a counselor at Tungsis Community College in Farmington. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Nice to be here. Now, we know uh, community colleges are commuter campuses. Also, there are many non-traditional students, um, possibly older, maybe going back to school after being in the workforce. They may have families of their own. So can you talk about the, the stresses that community college students faced in this last year and a half? Sure. I'd have to say that listening to Jenny and Dr. Pinkerton, it's very reflective of what we experienced at Tungsis Community College as well. We had students dealing with isolation, anxiety, depression, grief and loss, some family violence, homelessness, people feeling overwhelmed and unable to juggle their work, family um, responsibilities. They had job loss and childcare issues. Um, very challenging experiences that students went through and, and challenging for faculty as well. People were home now teaching virtually Many people had young children that they were dealing with or high school and college age children that they were dealing with. There were all kinds of challenges that people faced. And so what will Tungsis look like this fall, Judy? 
Well, we will have about 45% of our classes on campus. Um, we did have classes being held all during the pandemic because we have a dental hygiene and a dental assisting program and plenty of uh, continuing education programs that needed to be on campus. So fortunately, we have a wonderful management team that was very careful, followed all the CDC rules, um, set up an environment on campus that was as safe as possible for people. Um, PPE, the whole nine yards, they had to do all of that. When we think about how uh, your counseling is set up and how it may be different at a, a campus where there's a lot of students who are living on campus, can you talk about that? Sure. We had to do the same kind of things that March 12th date, suddenly we were told, you're going home. So we were fortunate uh, that the campus supplied us with the technology to do our work uh, at home. Uh, the other counselor in my area, Vivian Craven, set up a virtual health, telehealth guidelines for us. Um, she set up a virtual relaxation center for students. They could go there and access videos or uh, audio. They could find out about apps that they could use. Um, the campus was wonderful in terms of supplying technology for students if they didn't have cameras with their equipment. Um, uh, they loaned out all kinds of uh, laptops to students so they could continue their classes. The academic dean, Amy Fest, had to work with faculty. We have 70 full-timers and probably 250 to 300 part-timers that needed to get up to speed with how to teach those classes. Um, Fortunately, uh, the system made decisions about how students uh, could choose to um, take their grades at the end of the process. Some students took a no credit earned option or a credit option if it was less than a C minus grade that they received or a credit with a transfer indicator if it was a C minus or better. Um, her funding has been applied now for students. Um, many of the debts that students have have been forgiven for those students. Um, all through the pandemic, uh, our pantry was open for students. Um, there, there were people on campus like our Dean of Students, Chuck Cleary, who would, they would take the orders online from students, sort of, sort of like what they do in the grocery stores. And you could come drive through and pick up your order of, of what you found online that would work for your family and for yourself. Mm. Um, and so, uh, energy Judy, and Judy I'm, I'm wondering how many counselors are we talking about at, at Tungsis? And when we think about, you know, just the, the high needs that are out there, um, you know, do you anticipate that the, the system can add more staff to help with mental health needs? Well, currently we have two full-timers. Viv Craven and I have worked in the center for the last 23 years, but the system is moving to a new approach called the Guided Pathways Initiative. Uh, we are looking to hire two additional people who will be master level counselors, people with social work or counseling backgrounds, and they will be the supervisors for individuals. We will probably hire as many as 10 additional people who will work closely with students, possibly have a 250 student workload and assist them throughout 
each semester with whatever problems they're running into. So that's a new approach that the system will be taking. That's good to hear because we know that the state colleges and university system has faced some challenges with uh, you know, financial challenges, with uh, declining enrollment. And so how will this be paid for? Is this COVID relief money that, that will come through for, for these additional staff? Um, I think initially some of the her funding will be used for that purpose. Uh, I know because of the whole reorganization of the community college system, they have made uh, student facing positions a priority. And I would imagine that therefore the budget for that will come uh, from the general fund uh, going forward into the future. You've mentioned HERF a couple of times. That's the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, Judy. Exactly. Um, and I admit, I, oh, go ahead. Students have received actually money from, from some of the CARES funding from the federal government. There were uh, certain allotments, I know, within the first, uh, probably when we first went home or in that fall semester time, where students received extra monies. The, the colleges chose to do that um, to benefit students directly financially. Uh, when you'd mentioned that right now you only have two counselors, but so your whole year, you've got lots of hats, right? So you're not only we helping do. people with mental health needs, but just academic counseling and, you know, guidance on uh, course loads and what they can sign up for. That sounds like a lot, Judy. It is. Um, but to tell you the truth, I find it very interesting. It, it uh, allows us to do a whole variety of things, a career side of the work, the transfer side, the academic advising and the counseling. So for me, it's been a wonderful balance. Again, you've been hearing Judy Riley Roberts here on Where We Live. She's a counselor at Tunxis Community College in Farmington. As we talk about how universities and colleges are thinking about how they can respond to increasing mental health needs from students, you can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You can also call in 888-720-9677. Uh, Dr. Nick Pinkerton still with us. He he's the director of counseling service at the Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven. And so Nick, in terms of uh, additional staff uh, that can help with mental health needs, what's it going to look like at Southern this fall? We are very fortunate that we've got a, a really robust, wonderful crew of clinicians here and other support staff on campus. So I have uh, actually nine staff in my, in my office, um, eight of those being counselors. We actually just recently hired uh, a clinician uh, of color and to add to our group. And, you know, we, we it's, it is interesting how different campuses uh, are operating with some different uh, staffing, different, uh, if you've gone to one campus, you've gone to one campus in terms of how they're, they're managing. Um, what I will say is that um, we are fully ready. We're offering robust services uh, here and we're uh, doing everything we can to prepare ourselves to support our students for their success and their well-being. Do you anticipate more students will be back on campus, Nick? Well, that is, that is in, in many ways the hope. Um, really, what I hope is that we, you know, I will be walking out to the beautiful quad and seeing the kind of engagement, um, the kind of connections, the kind of supports that our community is known for and that in many ways I think you know it feels like we sort of took for granted uh, prior to this pandemic 
My hope is that that will continue. I think we're doing everything possible to make sure that this continues to be a place where students can fully engage, develop, learn, grow, and feel connected to our community. Mm. Uh, we know whenever there is a crisis or a need to respond, uh, money will be set aside to respond to the immediate need. Uh, but Nick, I'm just wondering in terms of uh, where we're seeing relief money coming from and the fact, again, that we're talking about a system that's had some uh, big financial issues. Can this kind of mental health support on campus be sustained? Yes, uh, I, you know, I think that the focus on well-being, on broader well-being, including mental health, physical health, all the aspects of uh, a broad-based well-being is just such a critical thing. Certainly it's been emphasized in COVID, but social and emotional learning needs to be something that's invested in uh, at the very top levels of education and trickle all the way down. We are very much in the business at this point of ensuring that our community and everyone involved feels a sense of ownership over the mental health and well-being of our students. And that means empowering them with the information that they need on how to support students on how to build a community that um, really takes everything, every resource, uh, including like we talked about a little earlier today in terms of peer support and leverages it to be able to support our community, support our students. You've been hearing Dr. Nick Pinkerton here on Where We Live, Director of Counseling Services at Southern Connecticut State. Uh, Nick, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you. And also Judy Riley Roberts was on with us, a counselor at Tunxis Community College in Farmington. Judy, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having us. After the break, we're going to learn more about how higher education institutions nationwide are working to address the mental health needs of college students. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been hearing from local college students and counselors about mental health services. Joining us now on Zoom is Scott Jasek, editor of Inside Higher Ed. Scott, welcome back. It's good to be here. So you've been listening in. What stood out to you in terms of the mental health needs that uh, Connecticut students and colleges have seen and how they're responding? Uh, they're responding in great ways. I mean, the uh, Southern Connecticut, I mean, Tennessee Community College are doing the right things. Um, and that is really commendable uh, because the, the mental health problems are going to be serious this year. And it sounds like they have good programs in place. Uh, the question I asked uh, Nick at the end, of course, is whether it will be sustained. And is that a conversation that you're hearing as you and your colleagues uh, cover uh, the, the mental health needs uh, across our country at colleges and universities? Yes. I mean, there, I, I hate to disappoint the, the, from what people may want to hear, but uh, there are real questions about whether it will be sustained. Uh, the colleges and universities are beneficiaries of a lot of federal money right now 
because of the COVID relief funds. And that's great that they're using some of it, but that money will likely run out. There's a pattern in American higher education that when something really terrible happens, like the uh, shootings and murder that Virginia Tech happens, that draws attention to mental health issues, um, more money is put into it. But then as time goes on, it erodes. Um, because, you know, and, and for, for reasons that are understandable, even if they're not right. Look, college's primary uh, obligation uh, is to students in, in educational ways. So, so they are focused on the number of courses they can offer, uh, hiring enough faculty members. But, and, and, and mental health services tend to be eroded after the period of crisis. Mm. You know, we heard from Jenny, the student at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, share an anecdote that there were three suicides at her university. What are we seeing nationwide uh, with higher education institutions? Nationwide, um, suicide is a problem, a big problem uh, for colleges. Um, and it's sort of hard to, to tell. It's hard to say that it's anyone's fault um, because it tends to happen in many cases there is a, uh, a, you know, people react to suicide sometimes with suicide. And so that you have a string at one place is not unheard of. Uh, there have been five suicides, six suicides at a campus in a semester. Um, and that really gets people shook up. Um, the thing is, when we've looked at it, most of the places that have had a string of suicides are places that have good systems in place for mental health. Um, and most of the suicides um, were not in the mental health system, were not seeking help. So there, there's a real need for everyone on a campus to be aware of these issues and to reach out should they see a problem. And again, if you're in Connecticut and are struggling, you can always call 211 to be connected to, to a program or a person uh, that can start talking with you to help you. You know, I, I missed this comment earlier in the program. Uh, someone called in from New Haven to say that she's a teacher in higher ed and she wasn't hearing uh, the counselors talk about the practical things universities are doing to help students. She says not a lot has been done and a lot of the burden has been put on faculty. Uh, what are you hearing from uh, staff and faculty at institutions around the country, Scott? Uh, I'm mean, hearing just that. Um, it, and it's not the fault of Dr. Pinkerton or his many colleagues who are doing very good work. The fact is many students aren't in their system. Uh, and so it may rise to a faculty member to notice something about a student to notice that a student's attending class irregularly or seems to have um, you know, cast a pall about uh, his or her treatment. Um, and, and the thing is, there's not an expectation that an, an average faculty member is a psychologist, is able to, to help. But if they notice something, they can ask a few questions, see what's up. Um, and, and then to consult with the psychologists on their campus. Um, it's a matter of the, the faculty learning enough that they know when there's a problem because the problems, and, and I've mentioned suicide, but the problems of any sort of mental health problem, um, 
are, are probably in their classroom. Again, you're hearing Scott Jastic here on Where We Live. He's the editor of Inside Higher Ed as we continue talking about how colleges and universities are responding to this increase in mental health needs among students. And we heard uh, several times during the program from our guests that, you know, faculty and staff are also struggling. And so it needs to be uh, a full on uh, um, support for, for everyone involved. Uh, you know, Scott, I wanted to talk broadly now because uh, we're, we're still in this pandemic. The Delta variant causing, um, you know, a lot of anxiety. And we heard from Jenny earlier that a lot of students aren't looking forward to having to continue you to wear masks. And so can you talk about uh, what you're seeing in terms of how colleges are responding to keep people safe and if vaccine mandates are enough? Uh, well, the, your listeners are fortunate that they're in Connecticut, um, where, where a college can require uh, all of its students to be vaccinated. Um, there are a lot of states where the colleges do not have that right and where the governors are fighting it. So, so that's just good for, for your listeners. But um, nationally, right now, there's been a lot of activity in states uh, that maybe don't have the best records on COVID, where uh, colleges and universities are sort of bribing their students. They're offering prizes uh, if people get vaccinated, things like that. Um, they're just looking for a way to, to pressure enough students to get vaccinated. The numbers, I mean, we wrote about a college in South Carolina where only 35% of students were vaccinated. Um, and, you know, th that, that's just a terrible number. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, with students about to come back, colleges are asking, have you been vaccinated? They're tracking, uh, it, you know, in their systems. Um, and it's important for everybody to be aware um, of those numbers. You mentioned that we're lucky to live here in Connecticut with a higher vaccination rate than other states, uh, but I, our, our own investigative team at Connecticut Public uh, looked at some records from UConn that found that you know 771 students requested exemptions for non-medical reasons, such as religious beliefs or even a personal discomfort with the vaccine, and the UConn's dean of students actually granted 504 of those requests as of last week. And so I guess on the flip side, also seeing this in states with higher vax rates and is this a concern for administrators are they worried that you know this could lead to a spike in infections um i, I think they they should be worried um you know the religious exemption uh in theory requires uh some sort of statement of what the the objection is um, I have not heard of major religions having a reason not to get vaccinated. Um, and, you know, at, at Boston College, some Catholic students were objecting to vaccination. Um, and they were told, no, that the, the, the church is pro-vaccination. And so are other religious groups. Um, I think if you are going to let anyone with a note just expressing discomfort um, I think you may be disappointed. Um, I, I'm wondering when those um, when, when those notes were approved, because with the Delta variant, I think colleges generally have gotten much stricter uh, about uh, what excuses they will accept. Mm. 
Mm. Now, you know, broadly, when we're talking about how colleges and universities need to step up and to have support for students, you know, I'm thinking to, of all of those students who may have decided to take a gap year or um, who quit because it was too much. And so, you know, we're putting a lot of burden on campuses to be able to support students. But when we think about the students who are back in their home communities and, you know, who's reaching out to them, Scott? Um, I, I mean, I, I'm afraid no one. Um, you know, the, the, the higher education has a tremendous mental health problem, but it also has uh, professionals working to reach students. Um, if a student drops out and look who's dropping out, it is primarily low income minority first generation students. They are unlikely to have resources uh, focused on them. Um, and that is, is a problem. The other thing to remember is that mental health was a problem on college campuses before the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the issues that colleges face are, are serious and they, they may have been exacerbated by the pandemic, but the pandemic didn't create them. That's a, a good point to end on. Uh, Scott Jassick, thank you so much for your time today here on Where We Live. Uh, you and your colleagues do great work for Inside Higher Ed. Scott is the editor of Inside Higher Ed. We'll be sure to tweet out some links to your reporting at Where We Live. And Scott, uh, before we let you go, um, anything that you'll be watching um, in the next few months that, that should be on our, our radar as well in terms of how uh, campuses uh, head back uh, to some type of normal? Uh, yeah, it, it's really questioning what that normal will be. Um, uh, with the Delta variant, I think anything is possible. And I, it, I, I don't know of colleges that have yet, that, that have decided, say, to do another semester remote. But I don't, I, I could see that happening if the Delta variant gets bad. Well, Scott, thank you. And we'll hope to have you back uh, sometime soon. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Kelly Langevin and Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Now, tomorrow on Where We Live, we're going to air a special in place of our weekly check-in with Connecticut newsmakers. Uh, this special tomorrow will focus on elementary and secondary education, as many schools around the country are struggling to find enough teachers. Large numbers of teachers quit after a short time on the job. Some schools are constantly struggling to replace them. And the most common level experience of teachers in the U.S. now is one year on the job. We're going to look at the implications of these trends, both for children and for the teaching force. That conversation tomorrow. <laughs>